the words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in the 5th chapter and the 41st verse. The 41st verse in the 5th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. I receive not honor from men. I receive not honor from men. Now this is one of the series of statements that our blessed Lord and Savior made at this point in his discussion with those Jews who though they were now aware of the fact that he had power to work miracles and had evidence before their eyes of a miracle which he had just worked, still refused to believe on him and to surrender themselves and their lives to him. That is the matter, that is the context. This whole chapter, as we've been seeing, holds us face to face with the most vital and fundamental question that can ever engage our attention. And that is, as to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If he is who he claims to be, well, what can be more important for us? And so, you see, he persisted in talking to these Jews. He tells them that he is doing so in order that they might be saved. These things, he tells them, as recorded in verse 34, these things I say that ye might be saved. And it is because, as I've just said, that this is the question that determines our salvation also. It is for that reason that I'm calling your attention to this. Our Lord has been putting the evidence before them Evidence which is unanswerable. And yet he says, you will not come unto me. You don't want to come unto me. You don't desire to come unto me. That you might have life. And now in this particular portion that we're dealing with here at the end of the chapter, he is opening their eyes to their real condition to the true reasons why they will not come unto him and receive this life eternal from his hand. We were looking last Sunday night at the statement in the following verse. He says, I know you that you have not the love of God in you. That was one reason. Because they didn't love God. But here tonight we are looking at another reason. And it is a most important reason, as we shall see. What does our Lord mean by this particular statement? I receive not honor from men. At first glance, it doesn't seem to have any connection at all with what he's saying. What then is the explanation of the statement? There can be no doubt, it seems to me, that there's only one adequate explanation, and that is that at this point our Lord was reading their minds, reading their thoughts. 
You notice that phrase in the next verse, the one we were looking at last Sunday, I know you. And he did know them. And he even knew what they were thinking. How often does that come out as we read the Gospels? Our Lord suddenly reveals that he knows exactly what's passing at the back of people's minds and he brings it forward to their amazement and astonishment. Now, he's doing exactly the same thing here. He's reading their minds. And he sees that their whole idea of him and their entire attitude with respect to him is something that is completely and entirely wrong. So that what he's saying in effect to them is this. You are standing back, you are refusing to believe what I say, you will not accept the evidence that I've adduced and placed before you, and very especially the evidence of the scriptures. You search the scriptures, he says. You think that in them you have eternal life, and you're perfectly right. Well, now they are they that speak of me, and yet you don't believe me. Now then, he says, why is this? Well, he says, the trouble is, that your whole approach to me is wrong. Your entire conception is completely fallacious. And so he puts it to them in this most striking phrase, this arresting phrase. I receive not honor from men. Now then, what does he mean by this? Well, let's look at it in this way. There are two main matters here, it seems to me. First of all, there is this completely false view of him, which was taken by these Jews, his contemporaries at that time, this completely false view which is taken of him by so many people at the present time. For there is really no other reason why people don't believe in him but just this. Any man who realizes who he is and the truth about him immediately believes in him of necessity. So this is still the trouble. Now then, let's have a look at their completely false view of him. What is it? Well, he makes it quite plain by his statement. He says, I receive not honor from men. By which he means, I know what's in your minds. I know what you're thinking. You hear me going on with my address. You've listened to me as I've brought forward my evidence. You're listening to me as I'm pressing. And as I say, why don't you come unto me that you may receive life? I know exactly what's passing through your mind. I know what you're thinking, and what you're thinking is this. You think that I'm just a man like all other men? That I'm just a man who has set himself up as a teacher? and whose main ambition therefore is to gain adherents and followers, so to impress people that they will say, Ah, here he is, isn't he wonderful? Is there anybody who is in any way comparable to him? And who therefore attach themselves to him, and become his disciples and his followers. He says, I know that that's what's in your mind. You think that I am one amongst a number of teachers. And that I'm simply thus interested in myself and in my own position. And that my one idea is to gain adherence and admirers to get men and women to praise me and to say that I am the teacher for whom they have been looking for so long. 
Now he said, I know perfectly well that that is what is in your mind. But he says, I receive not honor from men. You're completely wrong. You're entirely wrong. Now then, this is, it seems to me, the essence of the tragedy of the position of those Jews. That, of course, is the essence of the tragedy of the Jews as a nation at that time. Here was a people looking forward to the coming of their Messiah, to the coming of their Deliverer. And yet when he appeared amongst them, they didn't recognize him. They saw but a man, the carpenter, this fellow, they said. Who is this? And they rejected him. And they cried out saying, away with him, crucify him. They regarded Jesus of Nazareth as a sort of upstart, as one who uh, was setting himself up as a teacher and who claimed that people should listen to him and their attitude was, why should we listen to him? How is this man learning and never having learned? They just regarded him as a man and thought that he was animated by the kind of motive that animates men in general. He was but one of a number of teachers. He was just a man offering himself as a leader and was rather annoyed with them and a bit bad-tempered because they didn't accept him and didn't align themselves behind him and go on and follow him. That's their idea. Oh, is there anything more important, I ask again, than our view of him? Is there anything which is more tragic than this failure to realize who exactly he is. Now then, let's listen to our, to our Lord's reply to them. He's reading their mind. He knows exactly what they're thinking. That was, that was what they were thinking. What does he say to them? Well, here it is. First of all, let us look at the actual statement. I receive not honor from men. I suggest to you that that is one of the most stupendous statements that has ever been made in this world. And it is stupendous because it is simply and actually the truth. He stood there and he confronted them and he made a statement that is literal, actually true. It is a statement that no other man has ever dared to make or ever can make truthfully and honestly. And yet it is the statement that our Lord himself makes. Now he goes on to show that no one else does make this statement and can make it in verse 44. How can you believe, he says, which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only. By which, of course, he means this, that the whole of life is really characterized by this desire for honor and for praise. I was dealing with this point in a sense this morning when I was dealing with that injunction of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians in which he tells them to put away lying and to speak truth with one another. And I was making this point. 
that the ultimate reason why people lie to one another is their craving for praise, is their craving uh, for adulation, is their desire to be important and to be interesting. Indeed, the whole trouble with all of us in sin is that we are craving for honor. We want praise, we yearn for praise, we long for praise, we live for praise. It's true of the whole of mankind. And yet here is one, I say, who stands in, in front of these people and confronts them and says, I receive not honor from men. Now I say it's a stupendous and an arresting statement. It's perfectly in line with all the statements that he has been making to these people from the very beginning. His Claim to an equality with God, to be one in will with God. All these claims that he makes. But here it is in one of the most arresting forms in which he has ever stated it. And I am holding it before you because this is one of the things again that supplies us with this vital evidence that we need in order to know who he is and to believe upon him. Whatever else we do, we've got to reckon with this statement. Who is this who thus can face the world and say, I receive not honor from men. It is either true or it's not true. How do you explain its uniqueness? What do you make of a person who makes such a claim? And such an asseveration. Well, there it is. We look at his actual statement, but obviously we don't leave it at that. For here, it seems to me, he not only tells us that he does not seek or covet honor from men. He tells us why he doesn't do so. And this is the thing, of course, in which he gives us the revelation concerning himself. Why is it that he says that he does not desire, nor covet, nor receive this praise which is given by men? And the answer is perfectly simple. He doesn't need it. He doesn't desire it because he doesn't need it. And why doesn't he need it? And the answer is that he doesn't need it because he is who he is. Now, there is no other conceivable explanation of this. He is someone who is entirely different from all men. That is why he hasn't this characteristic that is so common in men. He doesn't desire it, I say, because he is who and what he is. Well, who is he? Well, I read to you that statement at the beginning from the epistle to the Hebrews. This is why he doesn't desire the praise of men. Because he is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. It is, I say, because he is the one about whom John has been writing in his very prologue in these words. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, 
and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That is who he is, but let me go on. He will remember that he says in his high priestly prayer at the end of his life, it's recorded in the 17th chapter of this gospel according to St. John. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now this is the only conceivable explanation. Why does he not require glory? Why will he not receive glory from men? The answer is, he doesn't need it because he has a glory. A glory which he has had from eternity in the bosom of his eternal father. But we can't even leave it at that. Here is, I say, the eternal and everlasting son of God. But here he is in the world. And what does that mean? Well, that means something which the Apostle Paul has stated for us once and forever in a great passage in the Epistle to the Philippians in the second chapter. Listen to this. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Why does he say that? Well, he says it for this reason. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. The trouble with mankind is that every man is looking on his own things and he forgets other people. He wants to be great. He wants to be the center of attraction. He wants to be praised of men and to be glorified by men. No, no, says Paul, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what was that? Well, here it is. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, which means this. He was in the form of God. He was God, God the Son. And had all the signs and the appearances and the characteristics and the glory of everlasting God. But he did not regard that as something to be held on to at all costs. He had the glory as the Son of God. Yes, but he didn't hold on to that and say, well, now, I'm never going to let this go. This is so marvelous. No, no, he wasn't like that. He wasn't selfish. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He didn't hold on to the prerogatives of his goddess. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now what does all this mean? Well, you see, what it means is this. Here is one who from eternity has enjoyed the glory and the prerogatives of God. There's nothing beyond that. He's the express image of God's person. He's the effulgence of God's glory. He had it. He'd enjoyed it from all eternity. Here he is in time. Is it conceivable that he needs any glory from men? 
He says that's where you're blind. That's the tragic essence of your blindness. You think that I'm a man who wants to be glorified and to be praised. You don't know me. I have a glory which you can't see. And you can't see it. Because I have humbled myself. Because I have come into the world incognito. Because I have taken unto me human nature. Because I've made myself of no reputation. You think that I want a great reputation. You think that I'm annoyed because you don't believe in me. Because I want a big reputation. I want to be a great man. Can't you see by looking at me and looking at my miracles that I am one who has made himself of no reputation. That's what they couldn't see. That is the thing to which sin and the devil had utterly blinded them. He is in the world. His very presence is proof positive and abundant that he doesn't seek such glory because of the everlasting and eternal glory which is still his. He's only laid aside the appearances of it for a while. He has humbled himself. He has made himself of no reputation. He has come and lived as a man, even as a servant, and he has humbled himself down even to the death of the cross itself. Oh, the tragedy, I say. Can you see the picture? Can you conjure it up in your minds? Here are these clever Jews thinking, ha ha, he's but a man amongst men and he's annoyed because we're not giving him glory. They can't see that here is the most stupendous thing that the world has ever known. Here is one who had it, but didn't hold on to it and laid it aside. What for? That men and women like themselves might be saved. Is there anything so blind as sin? Is there anything so short-sighted? Is there anything that so lacks the ability to see and to understand and to perceive? No, no, he says, I don't need praise from men. I won't take it. Why? Well, I have a praise and a glory. He keeps on saying it. The only praise and glory that he is concerned about is that which God can give. I came, he says, not to do mine own will, but to do the will of my Father. And there again in the high priestly prayer at the end of his life, he can pray to his Father and say, Father, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have glorified thee. Can't you see that this is of the very essence of the whole message of the gospel? This is an essential part of the whole movement of salvation. That he who has all glory, did you notice the terms in that great chapter there, in that first chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews? This is the kind of glory that he had. It is of him and of him alone we read that this has been said. Let all the angels of God worship him. And they did. Unto which of the angels said God at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. To which of them has he ever said, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. To the son he saith, 
Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. That's never been said to an angel. Here is one above the angels. Let all the angels of God worship thee. And they did. They honored the Son. They bowed before him. They ascribed all praise and might and majesty and dominion to him. And yet here he is amongst men. And men think he needs their praise. No, no. I receive not honor from men, he repeats. I don't covet nor ask for the praise of men. And that is the reason why his one idea was to glorify the Father he had come in order to do so. Very well. Now there is his statement. But we can't leave it at that. What's the practical import of this? What is the practical application of all this to us? What does all that say someone to do with me? He said that to those Jews of old. We are here in 1958. What has that got to do with us? Well, my dear friend, it's just this. What is your view of him? What do you think of him? Here's the vital question. And he is here showing us that we can have a view of him that is so terribly and tragically wrong that it damns our souls, stands between us and salvation, stands between us and the gift of life from his blessed hands. It's the failure to realize who he is that finally damns the soul. Now then I ask, what is your view of him? Patently, rejection of him is fatal, isn't it? For a man to say, I'm not interested in him, I don't want to hear about him. Everybody will agree about that. Well, that puts a man outside. But is that the only view of him that puts us outside? Is rejection, deliberate actual rejection, the only wrong and fatal view to take of the Lord Jesus Christ? No, unfortunately it isn't here. He says there's another way of doing it. And the other way of doing it that we are looking at tonight is thus. Is to praise him in the wrong way. Is to give him a kind of praise and applause that are quite as bad as a total rejection of him. Now then, let me explain what I mean. Our Lord here says that he doesn't desire our praise or our approbation or our admiration. In what respects? Well, he doesn't merely ask for our praise as a man. You know, there are many people in the world who greatly admire Jesus of Nazareth. They say he is the greatest and most marvelous and wonderful man that this world has ever known. They say, look at his life. Look at the way in which he lived. Look at the mighty deeds he did. They're always praising Jesus. Praising him as a man. They put him into the highest categories. They pick him out as amongst the greatest. And indeed would even say that he is the greatest. He's preeminent. And he stands alone and is supreme. Now here are men who are apparently are not rejecting him. They're indeed praising him. They put him on a pedestal. 
They do their obeisance to him. They say, here he is, look at him. This man, Jesus. And they're always talking about it. But I am suggesting to you seriously and solemnly this evening that he doesn't want that. That that's the kind of thing that he rejects completely. And so, you see, many of your great philosophers and many of your men who belong to other religions, I take but one example at random, like a man like the late Mr. Gandhi, always praised Jesus. And yet he died a Hindu. He never became a Christian. But he was constantly praising him and lauding him and saying how wonderful he was. You know, my friend, the Lord Jesus Christ won't have that. He won't take it. He doesn't want that sort of praise. Praising him as a man, praising him in his life. And there are others who offer him great praise as a teacher. Oh yes, as a religious teacher. Haven't you read their books and articles? They say he's the greatest religious genius of all time. They say, now, of course, when you read the Sermon on the Mount there, you've got it. What wonderful teaching. What sublime thoughts. What wonderful blending of simplicity and profundity. Ah, what a noble ethic, they say. They say he is indeed the greatest religious genius and the greatest religious teacher that the world has ever known. And they praise him again and they put him on the pedestal and they lavish their praise upon him. But I make bold to assert that he won't have it and he's not interested in it. And says, I don't receive such praise. And others think of him only as an ethical teacher. And others, and this is very common and popular at the present time, it seems to me, praise him as a social and political teacher. You really do gather the impression from some of them that he was nothing but this. And that all the world needs tonight is to follow Jesus as the social teacher and the political teacher. But I have very definite evidence to put before you, which seems to me to prove conclusively that he will not accept such a position. You will find in the very next chapter of this gospel, sixth chapter of John's gospel, in verse 15, something like this. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king. He departed again into a mountain himself alone. You see what was happening. These people had been listening to his teaching and then he had just worked a very amazing miracle. He had fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. And when they saw this they were filled with amazement and astonishment. When those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world. At last, they said, He's come. The man was going to lead us politically. The man was going to gather a great army and deliver us from the yoke of this Roman tyranny and was going to set himself up as king. Let's go and take him. He doesn't seem to be quite ready. They went to take him by force to make him a king. But when he saw it, he departed again into a mountain himself alone.
He hasn't come into this world to be praised politically. He hasn't come to be a king. He hasn't come to have the adulation of men along this social and political line. Let me give you another instance. Do you remember on one occasion he was speaking? You'll find the record in the 12th chapter of Luke's Gospel. And he was preaching a most mystical sermon and telling the disciples about God's care for them and warning them about their souls and their eternal destiny. And the moment he finished, a man blurted out and said, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. What did our Lord say to that man? He said, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? Now let's be clear about this man. Why did that man put that request to our Lord? Well, he did it for this reason. He'd been listening to him. He'd been listening to him perhaps on many occasions and had seen his miracles. And he thought to himself, well, now here's the very man that I want. I want to get this dispute settled between my brother and myself. Here's a man who's got a social ethic. Here's a man who's got a political view and idea. Here's a man who's going to tell us how to divide things up. But he won't have it. He rejects it. Man, he says, who hath made me a judge or a divider of you? Do you think I'm in this world just to do things like that? No, no. He rejects it in toto. I receive not honor from men. The man was paying him a great compliment. He says, will you settle it? We'll be satisfied if you do. He's praising him. He's lauding him. But he rejects his praise. He won't have such praise. Need I trouble to point out to you that men and women are still doing this? Is the one and only theme of the gospel armaments? Or industrial and social disputes? And the way to divide up wealth and these things? Is Jesus Christ just a socialist? And no more? He's being praised as such. He's being lauded as such. But can't you see that he rejects all such approaches? He dismisses them. Why, the devil himself tried to do something like this with him. You remember one of the temptations was that he offered him all the kingdoms of this world. He could become supreme ruler if only he bowed down and worshipped him. He wouldn't have it. He doesn't want that kind of thing. And then, do you remember, here's another instance of the same thing. It's extraordinary how many there are in the Gospels. In the 11th chapter of Luke's Gospel, I read this. It came to pass as he spake these things. A certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee and the paps which thou hast sucked. Now, you'd have thought that that pleased him, wouldn't you? But this is what he said. Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. He doesn't want this sentimental praise. He doesn't want people simply to praise him. No, no, he says, blessed are they, rather, that hear the word of God and guard it and keep it and put it in their hearts and live by it. And then you remember there's another illustration of it towards the end of his life. Just as he was going to the cross, a number of women from Jerusalem were there looking on and weeping and feeling very sorry and offering their sympathy and their compassion. And he turns upon them and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, 
But weep for yourselves and for your children. He realized that this view of him was blinding them to his real mission and to their own condition. He doesn't want this personal attention in this wrong way. Oh, let me sum it up by putting it like this. He doesn't desire merely our praise, our applause, our admiration, our sympathy. He's not interested in this purely objective view of him that you or I may take. Ah, we can even praise him and magnify him in a sense. But the question is, why do we do so? And if we do it in any one of the ways that I've been indicating, he rejects it. He does not receive such praise from men. He won't have it. Very well then, says someone, what is it that he does desire from us? If he rejects that, what does he want? Well, he's already been telling these people, you will not come unto me that you might have life. What is this? Well, what he's saying is this. He doesn't want us to stand back and say, well, now I think that this is the greatest man who's ever lived. I've never heard such teaching. I think that's the thing the world needs. Put into practice Christ's ethical teaching. Follow him politically and socially. No, no, he says. What he wants is first and foremost a recognition of who he is and what he is. A man who's interested in the teaching of Christ before he's interested in Christ himself is a man whom he rejects. It is he himself that matters. And if we have not seen and realized that he is the only begotten Son of God, if we don't realize that he goes into a category alone and apart, if we don't believe in the incarnation, if we don't believe that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, if we don't believe that this blessed person is at the same time God and man, whatever else we may say about him, he rejects. He wants a recognition of his person. Not that he may have our praise but that we may know that the Lord of glory once left that glory and came down into this world to dwell. Why does he want us to recognize this? Well, it is because he wants us to realize why he's come. He doesn't want this false praise. Well, what does he want? Well, he says, I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. That's what he wants is a recognition and a realization that he has come in his Father's name. But what does that mean? You say, well, I can tell you. You see, what he wants is this. Not that you admire his teaching in any respect, or admire his person, or admire his example, or any one of these things. He wants you to know that God the Eternal Father has sent him into this world on a particular mission. I am come, he says, in my Father's name. I am come on his authority. I have come to declare him and to reveal him. He has not merely come to be a judge or a divider amongst men. 
He hasn't come just to settle our little affairs in that sense. No, no. He has come to reveal God to us. He has come to say, He hath seen me, hath seen the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. My dear friend, have you looked at him like that? I'm not interested in your view of Christ's political or ethical or any other teaching. I'm asking what have you made of him? Have you realized that he's in this world in order to make God known to you? Or let me put it like this. He says repeatedly that he has come into this world to do the work that God has given him to do. What is this work? Well, this is the whole message of salvation. That's what these Jews couldn't see. That's what he means by saying to them, you will not come unto me that you might have life. You're dead. You're damned. You're lost. You haven't any spiritual life. And I've come to give it you. And how has he come to give it us? Well, he has come to do a work that was given him by his father to do. There is a certain work that is necessary before any of us can receive life. What is that? Well, our sinfulness has to be dealt with. We have all sinned against God. We have all broken God's holy law. There is none righteous, no, not one. We are at enmity against God and our sins are there. Something's got to be done. He came into the world. His father sent him. He's come in his father's name. What for? He has come to reconcile us to God. And in order to reconcile us to God, he did all that which the Apostle Paul tells us there. In the second chapter of that epistle to the Philippians, he humbled himself, yes, even unto death, even the death of the cross. He wasn't seeking for honor. Didn't he say to his disciples who tried to defend him with a sword, put away that sword. Wist he not that I could commend twelve legions of angels and be carried into heaven. If he wanted such glory, he could have had it. He didn't. He'd come to humble himself to taste death for every man. What he wants is a recognition of that. That he has made himself of no reputation in order to take upon himself the burden and the guilt of our sins, to receive the punishment of our sins in his own blessed body, and rise again and present his offering to God and be received, and send down the Holy Spirit and give us new life and a new nature. I am come in my Father's name. That's the honor and the glory that I want. He has come to glorify God. He has come to tell us about God's grace and love and mercy and kindness and compassion. He has come to reveal that. And if you haven't seen that, it doesn't matter what you see. He doesn't want anything else. He won't take anything else. He has come specifically manifest this everlasting love of God and the grace and mercy and compassion of God to a lost world. And if you and I don't realize that he has no interest in what you may think about him as a man, 
as a religious teacher, an ethical teacher, a political and social teacher, though you may put him in a category on his own and say he's the greatest that's ever lived, if you haven't seen this, he's not interested, he doesn't want it. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. I am come, he says, that he might have life and that he might have it more abundantly. The Son of Man is come not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. My dear friend, have you looked at him and what have you seen? Have you seen just a man to be praised? Or have you seen one who's divested himself of the signs of eternal glory and made himself of no reputation and humbled himself? In order that he might bear your sins in his own body on the tree and die your death and rise again for your justification. That is what he wants from you. He wants not praise, he wants worship. He wants not eulogy, but adoration. He wants from you not your acclamation, like the acclamation of the fickle crowd that surrounded him as he entered into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday and then in a few days was crying away with him, crucify him. He doesn't want our acclamation in any respect. He doesn't want our admiration. What does he want? He wants us to say to him what Thomas said to him. When he realized the truth of the resurrection and therefore the truth about him, he wants us, having looked at him, to fall prostrate before him and say, My Lord and my God. My dear friend, I ask you again, What's your attitude to him? He wants nothing but surrender, worship, adoration, and the praise of a heart that having realized its lost and its damned condition, has realized that his love was so great. But he put on one side the honor of heaven and of glory. Came down and was born of the virgin's womb and put helplessly in a manger. And worked with his hands as a carpenter. And endured all the contradiction of sinners against himself. And even went deliberately and of set purpose to the death on the cross. And even to be buried in a grave, though he is the Lord of glory and the creator of the universe. That you might be saved. That your sins might be forgiven. That you might be reconciled to God and become a child of God. Oh, be careful. Don't imagine that because you praise him, you're all right. No, no. To praise him wrongly is as bad as to reject him outright. He doesn't want our praise. He wants our persons. 
He wants a total surrender of our lives to him because he is our Lord and our God. Amen.